This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, and my guest joining us by Skype today is Susan Douglas. Susan is officially a doctoral candidate in world history at George Mason University in Virginia, uh, but she has a long and impressive career in education, conducting workshops and writing numerous publications, including, most notably for our purposes today, the Indian Ocean and World History website at IndianOceanHistory.org. Susan, welcome to 15-Minute History. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So today's episode is going to focus on uh, the Indian Ocean trade. And I want to start off with with kind of a basic question, which is what about the Indian Ocean geographically facilitates trade between Asia, the Middle East, and Africa? Well, there are a few things. Um, Going way back, as this website and the project work that I've done uh, encompasses all of 90,000 years in the Indian Ocean history, um, first of all, the Indian Ocean didn't experience the cold of the Ice Ages. So for this reason, there are lots of tropical plants and animals whose evolution wasn't disturbed by the big freeze, including human populations living in the region. So for this reason, it's a big draw in terms of, of some very important resources and rare resources around the world. Um, another one going way back to early history is that the long shorelines, this great sort of M shape at the northern end of the or rim of the Indian Ocean, the long shorelines enabled early people to beachcomb and find food, eventually bringing modern humans from East Africa to Australia as much as 40 to 60,000 years ago. So the migration of humans into this region was was very early and uh, this interaction with the resources there uh, is of very long duration. The shorelines have also been an invitation to coasting with the earliest types of the simplest boats from the Red Sea to the Persian Arabian Gulf on the western and eastern coasts of India and East Africa and around the archipelagos of uh, Southeast Asia. The most famous facilitator of long-distance trade, though, is the monsoon wind pattern, which enabled predictable seasonal sailing on open water. So this is probably the first uh, experience for human beings to sail out outside the sight of land or beyond the sight of land uh, into the Indian Ocean. During certain months, the wind blow from north to south in a general way off the heated landmass of Asia, and in other months, the moisture-laden winds blow from south to north, uh, bringing the famous monsoon rains to um, to the coastlines there. Sailors learned that these winds would carry them from East Africa to Arabia and the west coast of India with similar patterns um, in the eastern Indian Ocean. Uh, Finally, scholars such as K. N. Chowdhury and Michael Pearson and many others talk about the role of scarcity in driving trade. So products like wood were lacking in Arabia, but plentiful in East and Central Africa. Prized spices and perfumes grew only in the islands of Southeast Asia. And textile products, tea, medicines, and ivory drove profitable trade along, across long distances of water. So you just mentioned that this website encompasses 90,000 years of human history which which is a really long period to try to encompass. So has it always been major commodity trade? Uh, has the trade evolved and changed over times? 
Well, it's very hard to know, but a couple of things have changed over time. Um, of course, the the very smallest uh, beginnings of commodity trade uh, go back to the, the third millennium or more. Um, the very small way of trade in terms of people coasting and fishing vessels that might have dealt, dealt in some kind of trade, of course, is there and is still there, actually. We should remember that. Um, but things have changed in terms of the of the volume as as people became more aware of these goods, um, there's always been a question about how, you know, there was even an, an idea after reading the Periplus of the Eritrean Sea that um, the Greeks were the ones who discovered the monsoon winds. Well, this is highly unlikely. People were traveling uh, in the open ocean probably before 1000 BCE, um, but at least by then there's consensus that that's uh, in the scholarship that they were at least by then using the monsoon winds actively. So um, as things became more known and products like spices, products like silk and so on became more widely known and in demand, the volume uh, increased. We don't know very well for some of these earlier periods, of course, what the volume was like. There's a lot of scholarship going on there. But um, certainly we have much better records for the later period and particularly European records for the um, for the period for the first global era after 1500, um, which has often given rise to the idea that that, that European entry into the ocean kind of um, stepped up the global trade in the sense that, that it invented an Asian economy. Uh, that has been also refuted. Um, it's just that we don't necessarily know from all the diverse peoples who traveled around the Indian Ocean uh, which ones were actually, um, you know, in what sort of volumes were trading. So, as we know from the history of empires like the, the Mughal Empire in India, the Ottoman Empire, the, the various uh, dynasties of China, um, nations or uh, pre-modern nations that sit astride trade routes tend to uh, become economically and politically very powerful as a result of their location. So, uh, and again, with, bearing in mind that you just mentioned 3,000 years of, the, at least that we, we know that people have been sailing back and forth. Who are some of the major players who are benefiting from this trade uh, along the Indian Ocean? Well, I'd like to backtrack just a little bit in the sense that, as I noted before, the players were initially coast dwellers and fishing peoples who took advantage of scarcity to trade things found in one place with those found elsewhere. Um, as specialized agriculture produced spices, mining produced gems and metals, and craft production in textiles like cotton and silk created demand, regular voyages facilitated by the monsoons attracted traders from as far away as the eastern Mediterranean, the South China Sea, and the Persian Gulf. As Janet Abulurud showed, there were numerous circuits of trade in the subregions. So travelers tell of bundles of different goods moving around these circuits and being made available at various ports. Um, there were trading families. There were um, different ethnic groups that, that traded specifically. Uh, people in East Africa, you know, Ibn Battuta writes about how, uh, how the, the trade happened in Mogadishu, uh, run by local families who didn't necessarily have a great role seafaring themselves, but had an enormous role in facilitating and managing that trade uh, from the coast. And so this situation was replicated around the Indian Ocean. Um, to the extent that empires... Um, benefited from trade, I think it's less a matter of those empires in the period before 1500 having um, 
tried to achieve any kind of hegemony over the trade or having even directly participated. They benefited from it in the flow of goods and they benefited from it in the wealth, of course, that it brought to them as well in forms of taxes and customs and whatever control they had. But it seems that a lot of the trade around the region was somewhat localized to smaller entities than the big empires. That, of course, changed when the Europeans entered, and, and again, a huge change that happened in the commodity trade and other types of trade were the, the change in the terms of trade when the Great East India Company and Dutch East India, uh, the Great East India Companies um, set out to monopolize the trade for themselves vis-a-vis -vis their other European competitors, but also to try to, uh, to manage things in a much more hegemonic uh, manner with more hegemonic goals than had been the case uh, previously. One thing that I think um, it builds off of the question that you had just asked uh, previously about, about empires was, um, is crystallized in um, a recent set of shipwrecks that have been found in the South China Sea area around near the Straits of Malacca, in particularly the, um, the Belitung shipwreck, which has been discovered to be a 9th century wreck um, that was most likely underway from Tang, China to the Persian Gulf. And it was carrying an amazing array of, of, of treasures, um, some of which are porcelain for uh, very elite purposes, possibly royal gifts, um, gold wares also the same, probably silk that of course is disintegrated over time, but also um, kind of pottery barn type of, of, of uh, dishes and, and bowls that would have been for more of a sort of mass, if you want to call it mass market, um, that can actually be traced to a certain kiln in China. So this testifies to what people thought before was only a might have been and could have been is now a certainty that it was and that this kind of long distance trade um, quite directly between one destination and the other, between uh, these two empires, um, namely the Abbasid and the Tang, uh, actually did take place. And probably since that's the only shipwreck we have so far, uh, probably was of considerable volume. Just to sort of uh, give a time span for, for listeners who may not be familiar with the Abbasid and the Tang, we're looking at about the first millennium CE. What other kinds of impact is this trade having just beyond the simple economics? Um, when peoples come into contact across a great distance, a lot of times we see stronger cultural connections. And do we find that here as well? We certainly do. And um, taking the best known or one of the best known examples of medieval travelers, Ibn Battuta, uh, represents a very self-conscious traveler who remarks on his comfort level in the most far-flung places. Uh, he mentions the wide variety of textiles, um, even a cloak of Jerusalem stuff he mentions specifically that was given to him by the rulers in Mogadishu. So this speaks of a really active trade. It also speaks of a kind of culture of gift-giving that, you know, he knew what to expect when he went from port to port from those people uh, in ruling positions who hosted him. He also describes, for example, the Chinese ships entering the harbor on the western uh, Malabar coast of India. And in all of these places, he feels at home praying, conversing with Muslim scholars and Sufi adepts. Uh, his journey is testimony that the trade routes did facilitate the spread of Islam, and the demand for trade in Muslim societies intensified those networks. Now, he's a representative from a fairly late period. Of, uh, he's a 14th century traveler, Ibn Battuta, but there are many others that you can trace. One of the main points that 
users of the Indian Ocean and World History website can find is during the on the medieval map there are probably five different um, sets of travelers representing Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity uh, traversing the various routes for various purposes. So we shouldn't think of these routes, even though Islam did facilitate trade, we shouldn't think of these routes as quote-unquote Islamic trade routes. They were in fact traversed by people of many faiths. And indeed, many travelers report that um, there was a lot of mingling that took place. So there was not just cultural comfort level among uh, Muslim travelers traveling to visit other Muslim travelers um, or in ports of call, but there seems to have been a level of comfort in most of these places for Buddhists and Hindus to mix and for, for Muslims and Jews and Hindus and others to mix wherever they were because, hey, it was a profitable business. They were engaged in all of them. In the second half, we'll get into European colonialism and talk more about the lasting legacies of Indian Ocean trade. Stay tuned next week. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.